0: Amen. You may be seated. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. and One of the ushers will place a Bible into your hand. And as we have sung these great truths, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, it is God that keeps us, isn't it? It's not our own strength, not our own abilities, but it is the power of the Lord that has saved us, and it's the power of the Lord that, is keep, that, that keeps us. And this morning, our brother Isaac Adams is going to share with us a word from first, or Second Corinthians on boasting in our weaknesses uh, as we understand and know the power of God that is in us. It is a privilege to have Isaac with us this morning. I, uh, w- I'm part of a uh, pastor's Uh, Association in DC, and a number of the pastors said that Isaac is a great preacher. And then I met the guy afterward, and I thought, hey, you're a great preacher, so I hear. And I told him that, and I said, you should come preach in Baltimore. And he said, okay, I will. And uh, it's been a pleasure to email back and forth and get to know Isaac uh, over the last month, and uh, looking forward to hearing him this morning as he brings us a word uh, not in his own power but in the power of the Lord. Amen? Uh, Isaac is uh, uh, from the D.C. area. He serves with uh, the Gosp- or, uh, together for the gospel, uh, as well as Cross Conference, as well as a website called The Front Porch, all wonderful ministries. Many of us have benefited from some of those ministries. And so let's just welcome Isaac this morning as he comes and brings us a word.
1: How's that? There we go. I'm just starting in weakness for y'all. Well, good morning, y'all. Y'all are going to make me feel lonely if I don't hear you, so I'll just do that one more time. Good morning, y'all. There we go. There we go. It's wonderful to be with you all this morning. Um, Like Joel said, I'm from Capitol Hill Baptist. I bring greetings from there. Our pastors know, know Pastor Joel well. Before we turn to the Word, let me just pray and ask God to bless the preaching of the Word one more time. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, I just echo the words of my brother who just prayed make us strong in the gospel because of this time. Lord, you alone can bear all the burdens of the world and not be crushed. You have the, the shoulders broad enough to do that. None of us have shoulders like yours. So, would you take our burdens in this time? Would you humble us in this time? Lord, would you let us rejoice even in our weaknesses because of this time. Speak to us through your word as our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, life, life is hard. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life is hard. There may be, what, like 60 of us in this room, but each of us has our own issues. And if you lumped all of our issues together, we would represent thousands, I think. Thousands of problems, of sufferings, of weaknesses. Some of us ache given physical ailments. Others of us have hearts that are hurting because we have lost a loved one. Some of us are demeaned by our bosses, we're ignored by our spouses, we're crushed under the weight of expectations from parents or peers. Other, others of us are battling sin, sin that we know is wrong, but it is calling our name. And it sounds sweet. Maybe you're battling shame. Or maybe you're struggling with a brother or sister who is sitting 40 feet from you. Maybe that person is four inches from you. Wherever you're at, one thing is true. Maybe not today, but it has been or it will be the case that you feel weak and you don't just you don't just feel weak you realize that you actually are weak and your weakness begs the question why why god why this cancer why this car accident why has this person rejected me why have they not accepted you Brothers and sisters, the good news is not only does God's Word have an answer, it has a hope for us. So let's just turn there now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 30. That's on page 970 of those Bibles provided for you. If you're new to the Bible, a lot of people are. The big number is the chapter number, the little number is the verse. So here we go, big number 11, little number 30. Hear now the Word of God. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I'm gonna stop there for there for now. Because this sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? We have Paul who, who wrote Bible, he wrote Second Corinthians, and he, we see him doing something that we often think is wrong. He's boasting. Who is he boasting to? Well, this is the second letter we have of Paul's written to the church he started in Corinth. Corinth was a massive city by the ancient world standards. Up to 300,000 people lived there. City was near a seaport, so it was valuable for trade. It was bustling with business. But it was also known to, to be one of the most immoral, idolatrous cities. Yet Paul writes to the Christians there, and he boasts. Why does he boast? Well, because the men there who claim to be apostles, and by apostles I mean people who knew the Lord Jesus or lived soon after his life and were especially ordained by God with unique spiritual authority to represent God to the early church, But there were men who falsely claimed to have this authority. And they were encouraging the Corinthian Christians to doubt Paul and to doubt his ministry. Now, this is lost on us culturally, but it was common in Paul's day for preachers of various cults and religions to travel around. Okay, so some of these men had marvelous capabilities and reputations. Many were paid well, adored by their fans. They were seen as spiritually superior, spiritually strong. So they see Paul, who had been shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned, and these false apostles go to the Corinthians and essentially say, Why would you ever listen to this guy? Look at how weak he is. His gospel must be weak too. You see, some of these false apostles were adding requirements to the gospel. Others were removing requirements from it. Brothers and sisters, you can trust that if we add anything to the gospel or if we take anything away from the gospel, we lose the gospel. And the sad reality was that some of the Corinthians were losing the gospel they were listening to the false apostles who demeaned the special authority god gave to paul and so they doubted the gospel that paul gave to them so paul is boasting to them to defend the legitimacy of his ministry But he boasts in such a way that lets the Corinthians know that he is unlike these apostles, these super apostles, as he sarcastically calls them, who boast in their own abilities. And Paul does this by boasting in his weaknesses. So the Corinthians can clearly understand where Paul's strength comes from. Paul takes what we often try to tuck away and hide, weakness, and he publicly elevates it as something wonderful. He boasts about it. Why, why would Paul do this? Point number one, if you're a note taker. Point number one. Paul elevates weakness as wonderful because weakness makes us honest. Weakness makes us honest. Look, at ba- look back at verse 30. Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Do you see how Paul's reliance is ultimately on God here? He says, you, you Corinthians might think I'm a wimp with a wimpy gospel, but God knows the truth. The truth. Paul's appeal is ultimately to God, not man, and that's what weakness does. It drives us to God in honesty. Brothers and sisters, isn't this honesty to God the first basic step we took to become Christians? We had to honestly confess to God, saying something like, God, I am a weak sinner in need of saving, so please save me. Knowledge of our weakness is a prerequisite to our knowledge of the true God and his power. There are no strong converts. The 19th century theologian Charles Hodge, put it like this, when really weak in ourselves and conscious of that weakness, we are in the state suited to the manifestation of the power of God. What emptied of ourselves... We are filled with God. Those who think they can change their own hearts, atone for their own sins, subdue the power of evil in their own souls or in the souls of others who feel able to sustain themselves under affliction, God leaves to their own resources. But when they feel and acknowledge their weakness, he communicates to them divine strength. In other words, if you have no need of help, God has nothing to offer you. But if you are weak and in need of God's grace, oh, does God have wonders upon wonders in store for you. If you would turn to him in faith. But weakness not only makes us honest to God, It makes us honest about our shortcomings to others. Look at verse 32, as Paul says. He says, At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I think it's easy to romanticize Paul sometimes and act like he had no issues. You know, Despite him talking about them all the time in scripture, it's easy, it's easy to think, wow, look at Paul go. He wrote half the New Testament, started churches left and right, even in elk buildings. He spoke angel fluently. If I could only be as spiritually strong as Paul, then I'd have no problems. But here Paul is making clear to the Corinthians and to us that one, he had problems. Okay. Two, he had no strength outside of God's help. Now Paul's example in verses 32 to 33 is lost on us culturally. The Paul's being snuck out of a basket, snuck out of town in a basket, lowered over the city walls, was a blaring example of his weakness. Why? Was because the highest military honor of the day was given to the soldier who was first to scale the enemy walls, not first to be passively let down from them Amen. in a basket. Paul barely escapes with his life. Amen. And he reminds the church of that. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes it's easier to go to God with our weaknesses than it is to go to each other. You know, on one level, we often know we should go to God. We can do that privately. But to go to your pastor or another trusted brother or sister and say, hey, my marriage is falling apart. I need help. It's hard to do. It's hard to say, I tried to share the gospel with this person. I tried to invite them to our Easter service, and it flopped miserably. But if, the, if part of the church's job description is to be a group that helps carry one another's burdens, how can we do that if no one is sharing burdens? Isn't that what bur- burdens usually are? Weaknesses in our lives. Hear me clearly, I am not saying you need to write a public letter to your church stating all your problems. Nor do you need to go home and try to get lowered out of your second-story window in a basket. (laughs) But you do need to share your weaknesses with trusted brothers and sisters in your church, in this church. And older saints, let me just say, as a younger saint, I find it immensely encouraging when someone who has been walking with the Lord for decades shares with me a weakness or struggle. Because it reminds me that no one has made it. Amen. That no one has arrived and that we won't until we get to heaven and that our faith is kept by nothing but the Lord's sustaining power. Amen. Younger saints, praise the Lord for, the, for those people in his church who the Lord has kept for years. Amen. Despite their weaknesses. So consider the consequences of us not sharing our weaknesses. We are essentially saying that we're sufficient, that we have no problems, but that's a lie. And when we eclipse our problems, we rob ourselves of the chance to get help. We rob everyone of seeing how magnificently God works in our problems, and so we rob God of the chance to be glorified as we try to glorify ourselves through the charade of self-sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, it is the church's job to help the church. And if Paul needed the church, we do too. So I encourage you to honestly, though carefully, share your problems with your brothers and sisters. This is part of loving them, and then they can love you, the real you, to the glory of God. After all, the Lord did not say that strong individuals would conquer the gates of hell, but that the church would, even though it's made up of weaklings like us. Praise God. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us honest with ourselves, with God, and with each other. And honesty requires humility. So point number two, weakness is wonderful because it makes us humble. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us humble. from me so we see that paul continues boasting whereas before he shared a negative personal anecdote being let down in a basket something that the world would see as weakness in 12 one through seven he shares something the world may see as powerful he's essentially saying to the corinthians fine you guys like spiritual resumes get ready for some of mine But before Paul lunges into this dramatic spiritual experience, he clarifies in chapter 12, verse 1, that there is nothing, nothing to be gained by this kind of boasting. You know what that word nothing means in the Greek? It means nothing. (laughs) Let this be a lesson to those of us who think we are spiritually superior who say or think things like, well, my quiet time is 45 minutes every morning, but Brother Joe's is only 15. As if we are the new spiritual standard of holiness. Let let this be a lesson to those of us who preach and serve in public ways in the church. We ought never to think that our visibility in the church equates with godliness. As if we achieve these roles by our own merit. No, the word for deacon literally means one who waits on tables. Deacons are servants. The word for pastor or elder also literally means shepherd. Shepherds were usually the lowest class members of society. Don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. We can inherently have some of the best spiritual giftings and be some of the most spiritually immature people. And that immaturity is highlighted by empty boasting. So whatever your spiritual gift or your role is, know that you are perverting it. We are doing this if we use it for our own glory. God gave these to us so that we would give it back in love to the church so that it may be built up for the glory of God, not us. Having clarified that, Paul continues on with what has got to be one of the Wildest spiritual adventures ever mentioned in scripture. Yet notice that he's still careful to distance himself from those phony apostles. He does this by describing himself in the third person. So, though it, it sounds like Paul's talking about this random man, anonymous guy, he is talking about himself. Now, I know this charismatic experience has all sorts of rabbit trails. That could be really fun to analyze. Now, what were these things that cannot be told? Where is the third heaven? To be clear, the people that Paul is speaking to would have understood that Jewish apocalyptic thinking are usually thought of a three-leveled heaven. And We could go on with other theories, but Paul's exact point is that though he could truthfully say I've had these incredible experiences that you have not had. He doesn't. Why? Look at verse 6 again. Though if I should wish to boast, I would, be, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul wanted to make sure that his readers knew where his strength came from lest he receive credit rightfully due to God. Paul makes clear that his confidence isn't in his accomplishments, but in the grace God gave him. He would have loved that line, that line from Come Thou Fount that we just sang, you know, Hither by thy help I'm come. In other words, brothers and sisters, I am only at where I'm at today because God has helped me. Brothers and sisters, where is your confidence? What are you boasting in? Even silently to yourself, what do you, bo- you rest in? Your job? Your successful family life? Let's pick up our text again in in, uh, verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or or he hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Whatever this... Rapture like experience was. Paul knew it was enough to make him extremely prideful. So he receives what's called a thorn in the flesh. Now he doesn't clarify what the thorn is. Some scholars think it was literally a physical ailment, though others think maybe it was a kind of besetting shame that Paul had given his persecution of the church before he was converted. I think we shouldn't be so interested in what the thorn was, you know, unless we think, oh, I have what Paul had, and therefore I have a messenger of Satan. But I think there are three things, quickly, we should learn from this thorn. Number one, the origin of the thorn. The origin of the thorn. The text makes clear where the thorn came from. It came from the Lord. Why else, in verse 7, would Paul say a thorn was given to him? Why else, in verse 8, would he plead with the Lord to take it away? So I know, I, I think Paul knows, Lord, you gave me this thorn. So he pleads, would you, would you please let this leave me? Lord, Lord, please let this leave me. Please let this leave me. Three times he prays. What does the origin of the thorn teach us? It teaches us that the Lord, without being bad, can use bad things for our good. The Lord, without being bad, can use bad things for our good. This is one of the most essential lessons for, Christ, for the Christian and something that seems completely backward to the world because the God of this world is comfort. So when a bad thing happens, the world assumes that it is a problem to be solved, not a gracious providence from God. But thinking the latter is what Paul talks about in Romans twelve when he's when he's talking about the renewal of our minds. The Christian thinks completely differently than the world does, especially when it comes to suffering. We believe that God, with wisdom, love, and goodness, uses bad things for good reasons that we may not even know. I love how one pastor puts it, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you can see maybe three of them, maybe one. If God sovereignly planned Christ's sufferings, we can trust that he's in control over our sufferings. What a comfort it is to know that behind Every trial in this life is a good and sovereign God who spends our sorrows well. So this next week, when, when trials come and doubt sets in, doubt your doubts instead of doubting God. Trust Him, brothers and sisters. Number two, notice Paul's repetitive request about this thorn. Paul's repetitive request about the thorn. In verse 7, Paul confesses that he knows this thorn is for his good. Yet he still asks the Lord to take it away. And he repeatedly asks, as Jesus said we should in in that parable about the widow and the judge. So to be clear, trust in God's sovereignty is not pitted against wanting his will to be different. It's okay to get something from the Lord and ask him to take it back. The problem is, often, our response when our prayers aren't answered in the way that we would like. You know, how we'll respond in bitterness or despair when we don't get the answer we want. But we'll see that though Paul's prayer wasn't answered the way he wanted, he did not respond in sin. The Lord kept Paul in a painful situation and he is free to do the same with us. One of my professors elaborated on this. He said, the power of God is often in a changed life rather than in a changed circumstance. For it seems to please God more to change people slowly than to change circumstances quickly. I was like pfft to me when I heard it. I'm going to read it again. The power of God is often in a changed life rather than in a changed circumstance. For it seems to please God more to change people slowly rather than to change circumstances quickly. I just, I just think of parents who have kids who have wandered. Yeah. Parents, you know you're playing the long game. You've got family members who have wandered. You know with family, it is a long game. Circumstances are not changing quickly. But trust that God is changing people slowly, even when we can't see it. Amen. Praying for deliverance from trials. Glorifies the Lord because it proves that we believe, Lord, you are the only one who has the power to deliver me from this. But what brings God even more glory is responding in obedient, humble faith when those prayers aren't answered how we'd like. Here's the third thing to note about this thorn notice the purpose of the thorn. The purpose of that thorn. Paul didn't receive it because he had a lack of faith or because he did some certain sin. That's a lie that prosperity gospel teachers will tell. It's not true. No, the thorn was not punitive. Rather, the Lord, in his gracious mercy and sovereign wisdom, gave Paul this thorn to keep him from a pride that would cause him to forget the Lord. This is why Paul says twice, this thorn was given to me to keep me from being conceited. So have you ever ever asked why, Lord? Understand that maybe the Lord has given you whatever weakness you have so that you might know that you are not Him. And that He cares for you. And, and how He cares for you. And that He cares enough for you that He doesn't want you to think you can survive one second without Him. Oh, how good. And loving is our God that he would want us to know him and his surpassing power at all times. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us honest. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us humble. It hushes our pride. But the Lord doesn't leave Paul in silence. Let's read his response to Paul. i start in verse 8. Twelve, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, point number three. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us experience and treasure the power of Christ. Weakness is wonderful because it makes us experience and treasure the power of Christ. Can you hear God's fatherly tone in this passage? Paul has just pleaded with him three times. And like a good dad, the Lord essentially tells Paul, no, son, I know what's best for you. And right now, it is this thorn. Remember, just because we pray about something a lot does not mean God is obligated to give it to us. And praise the Lord for for that, because sometimes we are like kids begging for candy for dinner. But the Lord, because he is all-wise and all-good, knows what's best. And he makes clear to Paul that what is best in this situation is his grace alone. It's enough. It's sufficient. And it always is. Notice the present tense that the Lord is speaking in in the text. It's not that his grace was sufficient or that it may be sufficient, but it is sufficient. Today, tonight, tomorrow—if it comes—the Lord is saying, "Paul, I don't need your talents to accomplish my mission, and neither do you." This is why John Wesley says, "God buries his workmen, but he continues his work." The Lord doesn't need anyone. Yet in His grace, He redeems people from the hell we deserve. He chooses to include us in his work of displaying his power to the world. And as he displays it through us, he gives us what is best for us. Aren't you glad that God gives you what is best for you, even when you don't realize it? You know, that kid at dinner may hate those vegetables, but he does not hate growing up into a healthy adult. But which has the, the greater distance in understanding? Right? The parent and the child's understanding of how vegetables help him or the distance between God's understanding of, and ours of how God is using our weaknesses in the fabric of human history? Brothers and sisters, the goodness of God's grace should not primarily be marked because he gives us what we want. No, he does that sometimes. It should be marked because he always gives us what we need. So God's grace is good, but why is it sufficient? Well, in this text, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For, that word for means because my power is made perfect in weakness. How does that work? Isn't isn't God's power already perfect? What's he mean by that? How does that work? Again, I had another professor describe this well. He said, imagine a battery. It's got perfect power in it. But the battery's power is made perfect when it's put in a flashlight and you see the light. Another way to put it. An older saint is telling me a story about his wife. Again, older saints sharing their lives. Love it. He said one time he was really sick and his wife cared for him so well. He was married to her for three decades. He, you know, he knew she loved him, but her love was made perfect in his weakness. In other words, brothers and sisters, weakness is the best platform for God to display his strength. And that is what he is most interested in. Do you you hear God's burning passion for the glory of his own name in our text? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect and weakness. God essentially tells Paul, in loving grace, I'm going to bring you down so that I may be elevated. That is what he requires of each of us. When a Christian with a mind renewed by the Holy Spirit understands that requirement and desires it more and more. That's why John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase, but I must what? Decrease. God deserves his increasing, his supreme elevation, because he is the most glorious thing. For him to elevate anything above himself would be treason against himself. So he must display his power for his glory. Brothers and sisters, all of the scriptures testify this. All of it, cover to cover. And I'm going to prove this in a quick snapshot starting in Genesis. Nothing and no one exists but God. To display his power creates everything. He calls Abraham to bless the world. By worldly standards, Abraham and his wife are way too old to have a child to accomplish this. But God, to display his power, gives them a child in their old age. God then tells Abraham to sacrifice the child, and in the last seconds, God, displaying his power, provides a substitute sacrifice. Joseph eventually comes on the scene and is sold into slavery and prison. From the depths of prison, God, to display his power, raises Joseph up to be the second most powerful person in the world. God's people are delivered into slavery, but a runt named Moses, who was almost murdered, escapes in a basket down a river. God loves using baskets to display his power. (laughs) Moses grows up, he commits murder, goes into exile. God uses him, a man with a stupefying stutter, to literally tell Pharaoh, on God's behalf, for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God delivers his people in signs and wonders. His people in weakness doubt that they can take the promised land, but God, to display his power, uses Israel, a tiny, tiny sinful nation no one had ever heard of, to defeat the world's strongest armies. The, t- the people demand a king so that they can feel mighty. God grants them one to show that men are ultimately weak, and he is the most powerful. God uses David, a shepherd boy, the runt of the family, the unlikely hero to kill a giant who was making grown men cower to display his power. The people won't stop sinning, and God sends them into exile, and after hundreds of years, he brings them back, and lo and behold, God blesses a virgin with a child outside of wedlock. She would have been shamed in that culture. Her husband and her can't even afford a hotel room, so they sleep with the livestock. A baby is born in some backyard town in the sticks, and he is supposed to usher in a kingdom? An infant, the boy grows up, he had no majesty or form that we should regard him, no beauty that we should desire him, yet he is tempted in every regard. But he never caves to sin. He tells people to repent and turn from their sins because his kingdom is near, but he does everything completely opposite of the powers at B. And he does it with meekness and holiness to bring glory to the Father's name, living the life we should have lived. False teachers at the time begin to hate him and push the people to as well. They shout, crucify him. And instead of fighting back, he, the greatest substitutionary sacrifice, lets them slaughter him. The living son of God, the would-be king, hangs on a tree as a cursed thief in the place of sinners like you and me. He goes in the grave. Three days pass. Darkness ensues. All hope is seemingly lost for God's kingdom. Then in the midst of hopelessness, to display his power. The king comes back to life. Death is foiled. Jesus sends his apostles who the week before abandoned him in fear out to do greater things than he ever could. In the power of the spirit, they preach telling people to turn from their sins and trust in Christ that he alone paid the sacrifice for those sins. Thousands do and are saved, including a former terrorist of a church who writes a letter to the Corinthian church that 2,000 years later, a church in Baltimore, Maryland, reads to see and to believe that God displays his power and weakness so that they in the world might know that he alone is God Almighty. I encourage you, saints of the garden church, and anyone here who does not know the Lord, come and trust this powerful God. Oh, he's worthy. We should finish Therefore, Paul says in verse 9, because of God's power being made perfect, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, I will gladly be honest about how, about how weak I am so that the world and myself can see more of God's strength in my life. So Paul boasts like this, not for his sake, but for the sake of Christ. And for the sake of Christ, he is what? He's content with sufferings of all kind. Why is he content with them? Because when he is weak, then he's strong. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters, when we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the Lord. It's foolishness to the world. It is backwards thinking that is so hard to employ. But by God's grace, we can learn how to. God educates our beliefs in the academy of suffering. And brothers and sisters, have you ever considered that how you respond to suffering reflects to the world what you believe about God? I once heard of a man who was suffering from cancer. People told him, I'm praying for you, that God takes this away. He would smile gently and say, you know the God who could take this away is the same God who put the cancer there, right? And he wasn't trying to be ungrateful, but what he hoped was that people would also pray that he would suffer well. Have you ever seen your sufferings as something to be stewarded for the sake of Christ? Christ, who was the most content sufferer ever, and yet he is the only one who never deserved it. We may have thousands of weaknesses piled up in this room, but we have one Savior who is mighty to carry us through them. Let's behold him together with a contentment that would honor his name so that his power might be made known in the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we could sit all day and marvel at how you have worked the fabric of eternity past up until this moment in a way that includes pain and suffering but in a way that will ultimately lead to that last day when we are gathered around your throne, those who have come to you in faith, singing that the the Lamb who was slain, he is worthy of power and honor and glory and dominion. Lord, I pray that we would reach that day by your grace as we sang, Lord. Let it be your good pleasure to bring us to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.